Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Um, I'm going to be talking this morning with two guests about a critical bill that's been in the legislature for a while, H-483. It puts restrictions on public tuition at independent schools. And joining me, in, uh, they're actually on the phone, is uh, uh, David Kelly, who's an attorney and been on the show a few times. David, welcome to the show. Well, it's good to be back. Exactly. Well, you're welcome anytime. I'm going to tell you about David in just a minute. And also joining me for the first time is Mill Moore, who is the executive director for the Vermont Independent Schools Association. Mill, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Good morning, Pat. Good morning. Um, so this is going to be a, a very interactive show today. We've got two serious experts on this topic. One of them would not be me. Um, but I want to tell you a little bit about David, and then I'm going to ask Mill to talk a little bit about his background. Dave, and we've talked about this on the show before, is a proponent of both public and independent schools. Dave's been the chair of the Hazen Union High School Board. Uh, he's also been a debate coach for 20 years, which we set up in our studio once, and we found out how good he was. Uh, he's been in the public school system doing the debates uh, for 20 years, as I said, and also his wife is an English teacher in the public school system, so he is a supporter, but he's also a proponent of school choice because, um, like many Vermonters, he sees a need for students and parents to have a choice. He says all schools cannot be all things to all students all the time, um, which whereas where I stand in Milne. Um, could you just uh, introduce yourself uh, to the listeners for me? Sure. Yeah. Good morning to everybody who is listening today. Um, so I'm the executive director of the Vermont Independent Schools Association, which is a uh, the association of all of the secular independent schools uh, that are taking or eligible to take public funds. So we're talking about 73 schools scattered around Vermont, uh, of which 30 are schools that take only special ed students, students whose uh, disabilities are so severe that they can't remain in their home school to be uh, to receive full services. Um, overall, um, we're talking about an enrollment of around 5,000 students in these secular independent schools, of which about um, half are publicly tuitioned. And it's interesting to note that a similar number of publicly tuitioned kids are attending school in public schools. So it's about a 50-50 split between people coming from tuitioning districts who are choosing public versus independent schools. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Pat, I'm, Mil- I'm having a hard time hearing Mill. Is there anyone yeah, I was going to ask Mill. Mil- can you speak uh, closer to your mic? It was in the beginning it was very hard to hear you. Okay. There Perhaps you go. This is better. That's Perfect. much better. Thank you very much. I was. I uh, don't want to miss anything because uh, I want folks to be able to hear all of this. So, uh, a summary of H483. Uh, many people feel, and, and maybe they said in the legislature, that this is a response to Carson versus Macon. And I was hoping Dave could explain Carson and Macon. I think we all have heard bits and pieces of it, but could you do that, Dave? 
Well, very simply, it said where you're going to be uh, tuitioning students, um, you need to uh, uh, tuition across the board regardless of uh, religious affiliation. Um, and uh, independent schools need to be um, treated with essential equality. Cool. Milne, can you add to that at all, or um, is there anything that's, else that's, in that bill? That's correct, yes. The, the, it's, uh, uh, the, the Supreme Court said it's a matter of religious free, freedom to exercise your religion. And it, no, and that it said that government oh. cannot discriminate uh, uh, between religious and secular schools on payment of public funds. If you're going to pay public funds to secular schools, then uh, religious schools have to be included as well. And that was from Maine. That came that uh, that transaction lawsuit came out of Maine, correct? That is correct. Yes. Yes. But once one state gets a verdict, the other states uh, are pulled into it. I before we get into the details, because I've got a lot of notes on this bill, I pulled down uh, a list of uh, independent schools in Vermont, and there is two full pages of them. But they have with uh, after each school, they have the words approved or recognized, or there's one, oh, accredited. Um, Mil, you may be the right person. Could you, what are those three status statuses that I just read? Okay. Um, approved means uh, a school has been reviewed by the Agency of Education and found to be in conformance with rules and laws concerning uh, eligibility to receive public funds. Um, Recognized means any other independent school that is, is not interested in becoming eligible to take public money. So they simply have to report uh, enrollments annually so that there's no problem with uh, 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 students not attending school. Um, and then finally, accredited means a school that has been accredited by a third-party organization that reviews schools, uh, and there are two of those. One is uh, the New England Association of Schools and Colleges, and the other one is uh, an organization that has just recently become eligible to do that work. Um, and I'm trying to bring the, <laughs> the name to, to the top of my mind, and it just will not appear right now. But anyway, the, the point is that a third independent third party, disinterested third party, reviews the schools and uh, says that they meet standards considerably higher than those that the state has to get public money to those schools. Interesting. Uh, excuse me. I found, I'm looking down this list. There are some very interesting names of schools, which I have no idea where they are. The Rock Point School. Um, where? Oh, Roots and Wings Academy. That's in Fairhaven. Uh, and it just goes on. Very interesting names for these schools. Red Fox School. Um, I know there's a skiing school in here somewhere. That one's. That one I think is kind of cool, but anyway, it just goes on the barn school. Um, so uh, I'm I'm assuming they're not they don't have a lot of attendance. Some of those schools I read, is that correct? I'm sorry, I didn't he hear your question. Oh, I'm sorry. When I when I look down the list of independent schools, there are some that I don't their names don't ring a bell at all. Are they fairly small uh, schools because they're either recognized? Um, uh, what was the other one? Recognized or approved? So it's kind of interesting. I've never heard of half of them. Yes, many of them are quite small. Um, the uh, the 
um, sort of the average enrollment for all Vermont uh, uh, approved schools, the schools that are able to take public funds, the average enrollment is around 70. So, uh, and enrollments range from a, a very tiny school in Rutland that has one or two students annually to uh, St. Johnsbury Academy, which has nearly 1,000 students. Interesting. That's really, I really got to research a little bit more. We're going to have you come back and talk about these schools. David, I just want to ask you, what is your take on H483 and where has it been in the, in the legislative uh, process? Well, uh, and no, if you get a chance to stay a little closer to your mic for me, it helps a lot. Um, I, my understanding, and I spent a lot of time in the legislature this year, but if H483 was not my primary issue. Um, it was wildlife issues, uh, but because I was interested, I did follow it. And my understanding is that it's, it's in the Senate right now, um, and I think it passed through the House. Mill can correct me. He's followed it more closely than I have. Um, and and my, my take on it is that parts of it have merit and parts of it are just plain dumb. <laughs> um, Our legislator did dumb things? <laughs> well, uh, the dumb things, uh, well, for one thing, to limit uh, where students can uh, take their tuitioning dollars to within 25 miles of the Vermont border, I think, is, is ridiculous. If a student uh, has a, a better fit in California, then I think they should go to California. As far as I'm concerned, if a student has a better fit in France, they should go to France. I don't think we should limit the distance a student uh, can be tuitioned to. I think what we want is the very best academic uh, preparation for Vermont students that we can possibly find. Um, I also think uh, the, the bill creates a moratorium on independent schools, and I think that's not very smart either. Milne explained to me yesterday when I was talking to him, Milne, you may want to talk about that moratorium and where it is, and it's actually in law. Yes, uh, H-483, as David said, did pass the House, but it is stuck in Senate Ed. Um, the only thing that did pass was a moratorium on State Board of Education approval of any new independent schools. And my understanding is that that was targeted at preventing more religious schools yep. from entering uh, eligibility to receive public funds. And, of course, you can't discriminate against religious schools. So the only way you can accomplish that is to say, well, then we'll have just have no more independent schools, whatever. And that that one little bit is the only thing that passed out of all of the uh, – proposals that came out during the but just that's, completed that's legislative session. Thing. That's a big one, actually, isn't it? And I know you said, your, where does your association stand on, let's just look at the uh, um, religious schools for a second. Where do you stand on that, your association? I don't think you represent religious schools, correct? That's correct, because our association believes uh, that uh, Carson, the Carson v. Macon decision, which overturns the Vermont Constitution's uh, prohibition of uh, uh, support for uh, religious education, uh, we, we think that's wrong. So uh, we, we continue to support the Vermont Constitution and uh, hope that a way can be found to cope with that. And, you, you know, I, I, I'd like to add something here. If yes, I could. please, David, go ahead. Um, first of all, as, as an attorney who took constitutional law at Georgetown Law School, um, I, I, I'm a 
fervent advocate of the separation between church and state. But people need to keep the history of Vermont in mind. There was a time here in the state of Vermont when there was enormous discrimination against Catholics. Um, if you were a Polish Catholic or an Irish Catholic or an Italian Catholic, uh, in the early parts of uh, the 20th century, uh, people didn't want their kids going to school with, with those Catholics. And they made it easy uh, for those uh, students to tuition into their own Catholic school. In fact, the costs were at least half the cost of the public schools, and the taxpayers embraced that as well. It wasn't until the 1960s um, that uh, the Supreme Court uh, put an end to that. Um, but I, I think it's important to understand that the sky didn't fall and the, and the earth didn't stop spinning because Polish kids and Irish kids and Italian kids were being uh, sent to Catholic schools. Interesting. Bill, um, this is, you said this was the one thing that the Senate really wanted was the moratorium, which was included in this bill. But now, as we just said, it's part of the budget. Do you think they will take this bill up in, if they got what they really wanted? Well, predicting what the legislature is going to do is probably uh, uh, unwise. Uh, right. But my but. Estimate, estimate is that, uh, of course, the bill is still alive. Uh, right. And uh, the people who advocated for it, I think, are going to be back as strongly as they were uh, in the just completed session. So uh, we're preparing uh, to defend uh, once again when the legislature convenes in January. Interesting. Well, there are some um, parts of this bill which I don't understand, and I'll tell you the truth, I object to it, and that's the restriction, this one kills me, restrictions around admission policies. They pretty much say that you don't have to meet the people in the school, you don't have to have a face-to-face -face with, the, with the kid because that could create a, an avenue for discrimination, which is illegal in, in other places within the statute. So it would seem to me that you would want to see the child to see if he or she has um, any um, any concerns or issues that may need to be addressed on the first day of school. If they're a new student, which this would apply to, I mean, that day one's got to be perfect for them. Otherwise, they're going to have a, a negative reaction to going to school. David, do you want to weigh in on that? And then I'll ask Mill to comment. Well, I... I, I um... I, you know, I certainly agree with you that schools should be um, entitled to design their own process for admissions and uh, and uh, a, a method for easing and and fitting schools or students into their school and their program. Um, you know, the, the special ed services is a is a is a difficult question at every school, um, and. Uh, and, and, of course, you know, that's why I've always said that all schools aren't appropriate for all students. And some special ed students uh, need uh, really specific services, and um, we, we need to do more planning, and we need to be a lot more thoughtful around those needs. Mel, I, I wanted to get back to you on what you all think about the admissions policy. seems to me children would want to see where they're going, take a tour, and maybe perhaps the first day wouldn't be so overwhelming, but that's me. Well, that was the, the, the discussions in uh, the legislative committees about that uh, made, 
it was that was a, a primary concern of several legislators. Their argument was. Uh, uh, if if a student is publicly funded, then there ought to be no uh, uh, selection criteria at the independent school, provided that the child was eligible for the, the entry point, the grade that they're going into. Um, you know, if you're publicly funded, uh, attending a public school, that's the way the public schools work. You simply appear at the door and they have to accommodate you. <laughs> what that argument ignores is that independent schools are not public schools. They are set up differently. They have different missions, often very much more narrow missions than the public schools. Uh, and so there has to be some sort of screening process at the outset to be sure that uh, the school can accommodate the, the student's needs. A student can't just show up at the door uh, on the first day of school at an independent school and say, well, here I am, accommodate me, and the school may not be equipped to do so. So that's why we argued that it's a matter of equity. Uh, equity requires that you, you meet a student's needs uh, uh, as they are. Uh, and uh, the, the, the screening process is designed to uh, make that to provide that equity. Uh, there is what is called the, the Public Accommodations Act in Vermont, which requires no discrimination on the basis of uh, age or sex or uh, gender or race or religion. All of those things are completely prohibited. So an independent school cannot discriminate against any of those protected classes. But it, it does have to have some sort of control to be sure that it's providing equitable access to its uh, available resources. That's great. I, I totally agree with you. And I could see this restriction maybe being used as a, uh, what do they say, carrot instead of a hammer or whatever. You, they could say, if you do discriminate, then this, then this provision will go into place because um, it really ties the hands of both the students and and the administration in the school. I I don't understand it, and I I don't think there's any out, outlandish discrimination in schools. Do you? I mean, I think they're all they help. They're there to help the kids, regardless. Absolutely, as I just said, there's the state law and there are federal uh, non-discrimination laws. Uh, um, schools um, simply cannot be discriminatory. Okay, Gabe, did you have a comment? Um, I, I, I can't hear him. No, I'm, he, he's not close enough to his mic. Yeah. You have to shout it out, Mill. Um, <laughs> did you have a comment about uh, what Mill was, uh, was talking about? Well, I, I, I just, uh, you know, I, I, I agree. I don't think it makes any sense right. to tie the hands of uh, any particular school, um, especially an independent school that has a, a, a specific uh, a purpose and uh, a specific um, Emphasis. Um, I think. Look, I, what I'd like to do is, is make a pitch for something that I've advocated for for a long yes, time. Vermont presumably has embraced the whole idea of personalized learning plans. Personalized learning plans need to be personalized, and yet we're still stuck in the 1960s cinder block mentality of our schools. I personally think that high school students, um, in their junior and senior year, their tuitions should be portable. 
we already create opportunities of choice to go to tech centers. We have dual enrollment. We have early college. And I don't know why we've restricted um, those choices. We should open it up and recognize that the world has been revolutionized since the cinder block revolution in the 1960s. And we should make tuitions portable enough so that students can explore their passions, whether it is art or science or language. Um, I, I think one of the most important way we can create truly personalized learning plans is, is to open our system up and, and be more focused on independent schools, schools that can satisfy independent passions and independent dreams. Interesting. That's great. Milne, do you have a response to Dave on this? Oh, I, I, I agree with him entirely. Uh, I think that uh, uh, the personalized learning plan philosophy that has been introduced in Vermont is excellent. It has always been that way in most uh, independent schools. And uh, now we're, you know, as I was talking about equity in, in, as distinguished from equality, uh, personalized learning plans are an equitable response to a student's need. But if, if everybody were operating on an equality basis, nobody would get any differentiation in their services. So uh, we're trying to transition from equality to equity throughout the educational system, and we're certainly doing that on the independent school side. Do, um, and either one of you can answer this. Do the schools still have what we used to call a guidance counselor who actually sat with you and pretty much developed uh, pretty much developed a um, a plan. Nowadays, I think they're more into discipline than actually uh, working with a student ind independently. I used to I used to go see my guidance counselor all the time, or he'd call me in when my grades were not going in the right direction. Is is there such an entity these days, Mill? Oh yes, in fact, it's it's much more comprehensive these days. Uh, as, you know, before the break, we were speaking about personalized learning plans that are right. uh, operating now, both in independent and public schools, and that takes a lot of uh, attention to students individually uh, by teachers and by uh, counselors. So, uh, to to provide that kind of equitable support to students. Uh, requires a lot of work on the part of the uh, staff in every school. Oh, I'm, gl I'm very glad to hear that because that was a big part of my high school experience was the guidance counselor, especially when they would call me into his office. But that's another story. Um, and I saw this thing surprised me. I thought years ago that uh, the independent schools fought pushback about having to take on special ed um, students uh, because of the cost. That was the real reason. Uh, but this bill says they must accept any student who requires special education services. Um, I'd like you both to respond to that. Good, bad? I mean, we are talking Vermont students. Yes. Uh, 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 can speak closer to his mic? I don't want to miss any pearls of wisdom. <laughs> yeah, I think David is still having trouble hearing you, Mill. If you could... Uh, You'll get hoarse after this show, but if you could speak up a little bit into, um, I assume you're on your cell phone. Yeah, uh, I'm doing the best I can here. Pat. I know, Mel. Uh, thank you. I appreciate uh, it. The uh, Back in 2018, the legislature uh, took up the question of whether uh, 
independent schools taking public funds should be required to enroll special education students. And the uh, conclusion in the General Assembly was, yes, that that does have to be uh, a requirement, and that was put into law, and, it, and the law was delayed by uh, COVID, uh, so the uh, requirement is only now just taking effect as of July 1st this year. And that under that, uh, about two dozen approved independent schools are now uh, uh, required to, be, to transition to enrolling special education students, uh, students who have individualized education programs known as IEPs. Right. So that, that is just happening now, and we'll wait and see how that works out. Uh, it, it is an additional burden on the schools, but the thing that concerns us the most is there's a tremendous shortage of special education qualified teachers and support personnel throughout the state, both in the public schools and the independent schools. So we're going to have problems with students showing up in schools with an IEP, that is a plan to address their disability, and nobody will be available to provide the services. They're spread too thinly across the state. Uh, and I think that's going to be uh, a, something that's going to require state attention in the near future. Interesting. That's uh, it's amazing to me. Where are our workers? I well, well, Pat, that's a problem in public schools as well. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that's happened throughout the pandemic is a, a lot of qualified people have left the teaching profession. Um, and and I think one of the things that is is difficult to get our heads around is how the profile and the demographics of the students of the 2020s has changed from the students of the 1960s. Um, one of the huge changes is the internet and social media. That's had a massive impact. But the, uh, the structure of the American family has changed. Um, the drug problem uh, right. with opioids has changed our families and our students. Uh, and so you're talking about guidance counselors. The, the job in front of guidance counselors today is not the same as it was when I was at Otter Valley Union High School. Yeah, I, I get that sense. Far. I have a friend who is a guidance counselor at one of the schools, and um, he was mostly used um, for discipline problems that are that occurred actually one time when I was in the school, I, I couldn't believe the student was just was so out of control and the guidance counselor had to step in. Um, but I hope that they are, because we're talking Vermont kids and, and they need somebody at school to kind of watch over them and, and push them a little bit, I think, and, and create a successful plan for them. Um, now, could we kind of put on a different hat, speaking of tuition? There's something in this bill which I didn't understand uh, which is not surprising, but anyway, create, it says creates new requirements that publicly tuition students pay the same or lower tuition rate than private pay students. Why is that even a put down in requirement? What, what has been the practice? No, we have to that? answer that question. Yeah. That, that was inserted, uh, by a, a legislator who was concerned that, uh, private pay students uh, we're supporting public students. In other words, uh, if you're a private pay student uh, without any public support, you're paying 
the full tuition load, and the school may not be consuming all of that money uh, for that student, and so there's something left over that could be uh, used to draw down the state's obligation to pay uh, for publicly tuitioned students. Uh, so what the what their solution was uh, was to impose. Uh, financial controls on these independent schools that would prevent anything like that. But uh, from what I know from talking with schools, uh, that really is not a problem. Uh, uh, money is, uh, the, the word is fungible, meaning it, it can be used anywhere at any time. Uh, so it there was no evidence uh, produced in the, the hearings that that showed that this was any kind of a problem that the legislature needed to get involved in. Yeah, it sounds like um, a, it just sounds like a bad policy. If somebody wants to help pay, what's what's the big deal? I don't understand this. I don't understand the logic, but there must be logic somewhere um, because now that's in this bill if it passes. Um, and this one, David, you just mentioned this in the beginning of the show, and I'd like to further talk about it, about the publicly tuitioned students would be limited to only schools within a 25-mile radius. When I worked in the Department of Ed as a deputy uh, under Dave Walsh, there were we dealt with a lot of uh, IEPs, I think that's right, um, and where, where kids were out, totally out of state, and it seemed to work for them and their families. And I, I think uh, if we want the best possible education for our students, then we need to find the best fit and the best schools. And if we straightjacket it with some kind of uh, a boundary limit, it just strikes me as being silly. I am aware of students who uh, lived in tuitioning towns like Weldon and Wilcott and Stannard um, who actually took their tuition money and became AFS students in a foreign country. And I thought that was just fabulous. Right. That, they, that students from not wealthy families had opportunities that in many states only wealthy families had. Um, and, and I think another thing that's important that I want to point out, when I was chairman of our school board at Hazen and we were surrounded by tuitioning towns, that didn't hurt us. It helped us. We had to compete to bring those students to Hazen with our music program, with our art program, quite frankly, with our basketball team. And I thought that uh, being forced to compete a little bit to attract those students was a good thing for our public school. So, um, Mel, what are, you, what are your members saying about the 25-mile radius uh, of the Vermont border that nobody can go beyond or attend a school beyond 25 miles? I don't even understand why 25 miles. Well, nobody uh, gave a reason why 25, and I, I did a study of where uh, publicly tuitioned students are going if they are going out of state, and it turns out that uh, 25 miles is completely arbitrary. Uh, there's a, a school that a lot of, uh, I say a lot, several Vermont students from southern Vermont attend in New Hampshire, which is 27 miles away from the Vermont border. So why would they exclude that school? Uh, well, nobody had an answer. Uh, but more broadly, uh, 
the current situation is that a student may take their public tuition support and go anywhere they wish uh, if they come from a school choice district. So they can go uh, to New Hampshire, they can go to Massachusetts, they can go to California, or for that matter, as David was saying, they can go overseas. Uh, and there's no difference in the amount of money that they get if they uh, are traveling. Uh, it's Currently, if a high school student gets about $18,000 a year, uh, whether they're going to an independent school in the next town or to an independent school in France, it's all the same. Um, so there's no unfairness there, although some people say that, that it doesn't look good uh, for public money to be going to France instead of a school in Vermont. I, I think that uh, the emphasis ought to be on the student, not on whether appearances uh, bother somebody. Well, that's my take. Excuse me. I think I'm losing my voice. That's handy. Um, I think it's about this Vermont student, period. And as David was saying, and you just said, that's, that's what this is all about, is to get the student the education in the style and uh, format that they can relate to. Because sometimes can, can, can you imagine the inspiration and the motivation uh, we could create with our students if we said, when you begin school here at this high school, design a real personalized learning plan. And imagine, let your imagination uh, help you design it. And in your junior and senior year, we're going to be there with the most flexible pathways imaginable. When I was in high school, they had to drag me across the finish line my senior year. Um, and uh, if I had had an opportunity like that with some kind of portable tuition, I would have been so excited. Uh, it would have been a remarkable change in my education. Well, that's true. And we also, I, I know, um, what do they call them? Um, Students that come from overseas to, to stay with families and go to school here. Well, exchange students. And, and yes, my wife and I uh, had an exchange student from Pakistan. Uh, it was life-changing for all of us. I bet. Um, and then, of course, over the years, I've hosted countless students from the former uh, Soviet republics. Um, and, uh, and that's just been a remarkable experience to see the transformation in the Baltic countries like Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and the difference those exchange programs made and the difference studying here. Those kids were enormously interested in our democracy, and they learned and they studied, and they took it back, and some of them are in government in those countries today in very important positions. I, I totally agree with you. We had, a, we had an exchange student from Hokkaido, Japan. Her name was Ayako Mori, and she hung out with the kids I hung out with, and everybody loved her. She came back for our 50th high school reunion. The whole place went totally berserk. It was really exciting. But anyway, before the break, I mentioned this public tuition student advocate. What is great? What is what is that about, Mel? <laughs> well, Sorry. we sort of asked the same question. I shouldn't be too. so obvious. Uh, when when H483 was in the House Education Committee, um, the bill started out in a in a very as a very mild bill that uh, we could uh, we in the independent schools community probably could have lived with uh, with maybe some minor adjustments, but uh, as the committee's process went on, uh, committee members 
started adding more and more requirements uh, based on little more than their own private worries or concerns or perceptions without getting much in the way of factual testimony to support it. And this particular provision that you're talking about uh, said that uh, it was a protection for students who believe either that they've been unfairly denied enrollment or that uh, they are not getting the services that they're entitled to. This is for publicly tuitioned students. Well, those are those are just ridiculous uh, on their face because schools uh, taking uh, tuitioned students are eager to have them. They're eager to serve them. Uh, there's there's uh, simply no problem there that that needs a re- government requirement. Now I really agree with you. I just saw that and I went seriously. We had a teacher come into. I was in the. When I was in the legislature, I was on House Education with uh, Janet Ansel as the chair, and we had a, we had a teacher come in who had so many kids in her classroom that also had aides, people that helped them through the, and so she has this classroom with about seven or eight in people, uh, young kids that needed this individual attention from these people, and she's like, "Help me, you know? How do I? How do I give everybody uh, the support they need?" I mean, it was just it was too much for her. And she said the legislature going, please help. I don't know what she wanted us to do, but uh, she was a little over her head with with that type of setup in the classroom. And now we would have a a special advocate. That would help them a lot. Sorry, my uh, personal opinion. David, do you have anything you want to weigh in on that one? Uh, Well, I I do think that um, one of the challenges and one of the reasons uh, so many left uh, the professional teaching uh, positions uh, in the last few years is because the classrooms ask a lot that you, you're covering students uh, who come into that classroom with such a variety of needs yep. and such a variety of, of readiness that um, to give each student what the you know the highest flyers need one thing. The kids who are challenged with reading need something else. And to ask one teacher who has, you know, 15 to 20 students in the class to provide the personalized learning that each student needs is asking almost the impossible. Um, And and it's one of the things that we need to address as as a matter of public policy. Um, We do need more personalized learning plans, and we need to be thinking about those in in by middle school, and uh, we need to redesign our our classroom. But it's a big, big mountain to climb. Oh yes, I I would think uh, this. I tell you, I remember this teacher to this day. She was she was serious about help me because you talk about all the kids you've got. Then you've got these six or seven adults, um, and it's just it's just chaos. It's terrible. But anyway, we have a, a few minutes left. I've, I was going to ask each of you to speak for a minute about the, the bill and about what you hope happens this coming legislative session. Uh, David, you want to start us off? Sure. Well, really quickly, I think there are some good things in the bill. I don't think it's all bad. I, uh, one of the provisions uh, calls for greater transparency and performance data for tuitional students, and I think that's fair and reasonable. Um, 
I, as I mentioned at the very beginning, I think there are some things that don't make any sense at all. The moratorium on independent schools, uh, the limits on uh, where students can take tuition dollars, I don't think that makes any sense. I think in the, if looking at the big picture that the legislature needs to provide the leadership public education needs and that publication, public education is not getting from the State Board of Education. It needs to provide leadership that takes us further in the direction of personalized learning plans, that gets us out of the cinder block mentality that has existed in our public school system since the 1960s, and that takes our students in more flexible pathways and tells them they can really dream, they can envision a future, and we need to spend our money more creatively and more imaginatively, and we can do it with by making our, our tuitions uh, more portable in the junior and senior years of high school and giving kids something to look forward to to, and dream about. I have to switch over to Mill because we only have about a minute and a half. Mill, do you want to wrap your thoughts up about this bill? Yes, thanks, Pat. Um, Well, I I think what I will do is uh, talk a a little bit about what Senator Brian Campion had Uh to say. Senator Campion was the chair is the chair of the Senate Education Committee. And he was very discouraged when uh, this bill arrived in his committee. And he spoke very openly toward the end of the session about why he was unhappy. He said there are so many things that need to be addressed. And he spoke about things like support for teachers, expanded services in the public schools. He had a bunch of things on his mind. And he said, we in our committee didn't have a chance to talk about any of that because we got so blocked up with dealing with H-483, which would had uh, which failed to pass in his committee and is likely uh, in the coming session also to be stuck in his committee. He wanted to see an opportunity uh, for government to address other larger problems, and he uh, was very, very unhappy that instead what came over from the House was H-483. Well, I want to say, Thank you for We have to go. I thank you both for coming on the show. I was going to try to do this myself, and I am very glad you joined us because I think people understand and have time to comment on it with your legislators if there are things in this bill that you're not crazy about. Or you may be liking the bill and let them know either way. It's called participation, and we would hope you would do that. Thank you all. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. Uh, Big thanks to to Dave and Mill, and um, we'll be back um, with... Uh, talking about the Cabot Arts and Music Festival. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Okay, thank you very much. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Um, I was expecting Dana Robinson to call. Uh, She is with the Cabot Arts Vermont uh, entity, and she was going to talk about the Arts and Music Festival that's happening Saturday, June 29th. So I am going to talk about it, and I'm hoping that she'll connect with us in a while. Um, Anyway, um, this Arts and Festival was uh, 
not held because of COVID, but it's coming back. And uh, here's what they've got available. It's on Saturday, July 29th. Nine bands, count them, nine bands, art projects for, the, for adults and kids, pony rides, food truck, craft vendors, and a bonfire. I have been to this festival. It is fabulous. And they've got, um, they've obviously have the feature artists, the bands. Um, the art projects are very interesting, and I was hoping that Dana could explain them to me. Is One is called The Labyrinth with Joe Godwin, who creates this labyrinth. Uh, in a very different way, apparently. And um, I don't know if you've ever walked a labyrinth. Um, we created one in the back of uh, a church in uh, Berlin. And it just makes things very peaceful if you're kind of all wired up. Walk the labyrinth and you'll see what happens. It's kind of cool. They also have a uh, or Janet Van Fleet, who actually owns and runs the Studio Place Art in Barrie. And if you've never been to Studio Place Art, um, I'm just hoping, I'm just thinking that, I hope that they didn't get uh, flooded out because it is a fabulous place. Some great artists, the display there, and there's art uh, around the building. But anyway, she is coming with a project called Time of the Signs, where you make signs and um, I presume get to keep them. Uh, there's also a kids' activity called Destination Imagination, and uh, there's this big display set up where kids can just about imagine anything that they want to. Um, so it's a great festival. I'm so glad it's back. But um, it's in a different location than it usually is. It's going to be held at the landmark schoolhouse. And there is some, I think it's 400 people will be allowed because of the, the size of the space. Um, obviously, um, the flood got the original location. And so they're moving it to the landmark schoolhouse on Saturday, July 29th, and I do wish I was there. I'm in Maine, so that's why where we're talking to you from. They also, um, the uh, the Cabot Arts Vermont, which is what um, uh, Dana is part of, the executive director, I believe, um, they also work closely with the Cabot Community Association and Neighbors in Action, which I really love the, the name of that. Lots of activities. They've taken care of both the... Uh, Free this this fair and and some plans. Uh, July fourth in Cabot is something to see for those of you who have not been there. If you want to see a real true blue old fashioned Fourth of July parade, that's the place to be. And Cabot, um, they are using all of the funds for this day to um, go to the flood recovery as a fundraiser. Um, and uh, I think that alone is, is worthwhile. Dana was recognized, um, as a matter of fact, uh, from, um, from her town for all the work she did on creating what they call the Twelfth Night Celebration with uh, people in old-fashioned garb, don't know the, the year, but old-fashioned garb singing and doing the things that one does on Twelfth Night. So um, that's a, a great uh, event um, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about uh, what the um, arts community, arts Vermont, sorry, has um, uh, focused on. Uh, previously, uh, they installed curtains and backdrop on the Wiley building. Um, they offer music lessons. That's all done. They established an ongoing concert series, which I'm sure you all know about, and. Um, they established an ongoing concert series, and that's done and, and created the Twelfth Night Music Festival. 
So Cabot is a happening place, and it's really exciting to hear all of this. Um, they have also provided summer concerts in the common, and that must be beautiful because that common is just a great place. They tell you to bring chairs and perhaps a little munchie and to enjoy the concerts. Um, and they also have this festival, which was scheduled for July, and that's obviously done. And here's one which you would think they would have already happened since they're in Cabot, but they're going to establish a cheese and cultural festival this fall. And that one I am going to. I live for cheese. I don't think I cook anything in my home that doesn't have cheese and oil in it. Um, so if you don't like either one of those things, turn down to any invitation I give you to eat because that's how I cook. Um, but next, next things that they want to do is uh, do some summer camp, uh, summer music camp. Um, which is just beautiful. I used to, um, uh, I had a friend of mine on the Lake Dunmore and sort of, um, sort of catty corner down the, the lake was a music camp. And, oh, we would sit out at night at the dock and just listen to these kids play music. And what a treat. It was a beautiful school. And so I would assume that the Cabot, um, music camp will be just as wonderful. They also want to establish a green mountain trail. Don't know where, but walking is good. And the one important thing here is they're established. They want to establish a permanent physical home. So if anybody has any ideas, you should reach out to Dana and um, uh, just sort of ask her, um, is she interested in this property or that property? And, um, uh, and of course, they're always looking for volunteers because I don't know how the heck Dana, I don't know what the size of her staff is, but I, I doubt it's too many people. There's no such thing. This, there's so much going on. And what I wanted to research, and I'm going to have these people come on the show, Jane Brown and Patty Conley wrote a book called West Danville, Vermont. Jane's grandfather developed the largest and most successful farm in Cabot. And I was going to ask her if she was able to get on the, the, radio with me this morning about whether that was um, damaged, uh, flooded out in uh, in our last uh, disaster here because we had Ensign Tempest on and he was telling us how many farms were totally flooded and whether they're coming back or not. That's a big decision here about the businesses and farmers about whether they're going to be able to come back and that's why we need to support them. So um, if you have any questions, um, you can call Dana Robinson. I, I know she had a very tight schedule today, so I'm sorry she wasn't able to connect. But um, reach, her, reach out, because uh, there's so many cool things happening uh, that they would like, the, the, um, uh, like the, the help. And, of course, there's always funding, and that goes without saying. Um, speaking of which, I'm going to um, skip topics today because I have to give a shout-out to everybody that Governor Phil Scott, emergency response officials, are going to provide an update on the state's ongoing flood response and recovery efforts. It's going to be held um, right after my uh, 10 to 11 show at 11 o'clock. Uh, if you want to go in person, the Transportation uh, Agency of Transportation Dill Building, which is on 21. 78 Airport Road in Berlin. Um, I will certainly be listening. Uh, the media knows to contact uh, uh, the governor's office, Jason Malucci, in advance, I'm sure, so I don't need to do that. 
but um, you can go um, on the governor's Facebook page and or Orca Media and um, hear the uh, the information live. Um, it's good to know what is going on out there for sure. Um, so I I just needed to mention that to you once again. It's uh, the governor's press conference on the flood. It's today, July 25th at 11 a.m. It's taking place at the Agency of Transportation Dill Building, 2178 Airport Road in Berlin, Vermont. So I'm sorry Dana couldn't join us, but um, that's the information she was going to share with you, and I will follow up on a couple of these things. I'd love to know what the time of the signs, what that does, and about 12th night, because we used to celebrate 12th night when I was just a little kid, and I just loved all the singing and and people in costumes and carrying old-fashioned lamps and all that stuff. Um, it's really cool. Um, there's also one more um, recognition at this fair, the Molly Brook Farm. In 2022 in Cabot, they were the Vermont Dairy Farmer of the Year, and I certainly hope they made it through the flood, flood okay, um, because it's it's just so sad. It really is. They're talking to, to uh, Anson about the flooding and the farmers, but you got to go to farmer's market and buy the meat, buy the products, buy the, all the vegetables to help them out. Hi there. Welcome back. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. I have with me one of my favorite people in Vermont. She does so much good work. Linda Johnson, who's the Executive Director of Prevent Child Abuse Vermont. Hi, Linda. Hi, Pat. It's great to hear you. Well, thank you. I'm so glad we could get you on today. Um, I just, the sooner the better, because uh, Linda has to talk about Prevent Child Abuse Vermont, but then maybe take us through the move and where you are right now. So I'll just let you, let you get away, Linda. Okay. That. Which I know you can do, by the way. <laughs> oh, really? Now you yes. now you want to get into that. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can talk. We're both good talkers. I, I hope you'll think that by the end of the show, um, <laughs> that I am in your league or close close to it and a big admirer, that's for sure. Thank you. So Prevent Child Abuse Vermont is one of the many outstanding nonprofits that, you know, are throughout Vermont that really make a difference for the fabric of our lives, you know, the culture of helping one another and being there to um, support one another in good times and challenging times like this. Um, it, it really has been so astonishing. But our, our purpose is to help parents and children have the very best lives they can have together and not just when they're born, but throughout their their 18 years of growing up. And um, we have programs that are online because of COVID. Uh, we had pivoted back, you know, a few years ago to online virtual live support groups, parent education programs, Shaken Baby Syndrome Prevention Training, Child Sexual Abuse Prevention, um, all kinds of um, workshops and um, really participatory and great ways of learning uh, all about 
what one can do to prevent child sexual abuse and how to safely comfort a crying baby and just all things related to nurturing and caring for children. So, you, oh, I'm sorry, Lynn, go ahead. No, well, you know, we love what we do. There are only 13 of us, and um, everyone carries quite an amazing load. I mean, they, they just astonish me every single day with their level of caring and commitment and dedication to all the parents that we serve and their children. And many of the parents that we work with in our uh, nurturing parenting programs and circle of parent support groups and strengthening families, group work is uh, they they have substance misuse issues and aren't some level of recovery. And uh, we have very, very skilled staff who are experienced and well-trained and well-prepared to help everyone help each other through difficult times. And I have to say that COVID was, of course, something that no one expected or anticipated, you know, and we had to really learn new ways of delivering our programs that used to be in person all over Vermont. But parents have told us that they actually prefer the virtual online programming that we offer because it gives them more opportunities to join and and it. it it's really amazing, Pat. You know, we used to be geographically bound, so it would be the Bennington, you know, mothers group. And you might meet people that, you know, knew you and you knew them and and you're sharing your most intimate details of your lives and you know, and then you see them in the grocery store. <laughs> now our programs are filled with people from across the state. So you're not very likely to meet someone who knows you or who you're related to or who you work with um, to share those kinds of details. And people really prefer it and have been very clear about that. So we've been learning and growing, you know, as an organization and um, using technology to support families. And then, of course, we've always had the Vermont Parents Helpline, 1-800-CHILDREN, and that is on from 8.30 in the morning until 4.30 in the afternoon, Monday through Fridays. And we have a chat component. Again, a new innovation for us that we've um, acquired through technology. So if someone doesn't want voice-to-voice, they can talk about what's going on and reach out for help on the chat. And if they would like us to call them back, we're happy to do that. Huh. This is great, Linda. It's very exciting. I've always wanted to do a show about now that COVID is over, what have we learned and what have we brought with us uh, into uh, our new our new way of living here? And I, um, I think technology, of course, we all hear about the people getting worried about, um, uh, about technology, but... Um, it certainly is helpful, and isn't it strange that that we can talk to a stranger rather than our families or people that we know? I'm much more open to talking to to somebody that I may not know, and and as you mentioned, run into in the store. It's yeah. interesting. 
Well, there are no political ramifications. You know, right. you have right. this information about me, and we work together. Yep. You know, right. it, so it's let's, let's talk about this. Well, let me see what time it is here. Uh, oh, a few a few more minutes, we have to take a break at the uh, at ten thirty. But you were up at the uh, Montpelier. Uh, golf club, um, golf building up there. If that's, I don't know what they called it. That's the um, Elks Club. Yeah. Uh, the Elks Club, of course. That's right. Shame on me. Anyway, as we knew, I did a show on this. Montpelier has lots of plans for that space up there. And mm. Linda and her group had to move. You found wonderful space on State Street. I bet people are going to know what the next comments are. And you were yeah. all set up uh, on State Street. What Was that a one-floor building? Or you mentioned the other day... Um, this has got a couple of floors to it. Well, if for those of you familiar with Montpelier, it was the bank by the clock. Oh. Right. So I we have the hole downstairs, which was the bank, and then we had a conference room upstairs. Nice. And when the flood came, the entire downstairs was destroyed. Wow. So we lost everything pat we lost all of our materials our curricula for schools we lost all of our parent handbooks and most of our vermont parents home companion and resource directory that we give to parents of newborns and to many other high-risk families uh, we lost all of our shaken baby syndrome prevention materials that get distributed at birthing centers and the hospitals we lost all of our parent education support program materials, facilitator manuals, parent handbooks. I mean, you name it, all of our outreach materials, all of our walk for children materials, all of our outreach and all of our posters, all of our, you know, pinwheels, just everything you can imagine, we lost. Well, you know, um, my favorite thing of all the things you mentioned was your parent handbook. That yeah. is, I just am so impressed with that, how you put it together every year and update it. It is a book of where to go for what and where to get help. Um, if you've got that book, um, you won't have any trouble getting around because they they just help you through it. If you need help on this or that, it's in that book and where to call. It's a great service. Thank you. And we used to say, if I was on the radio with you, just, you know, call 1-800-CHILDREN and ask for a copy and we'll send it to you. Yep. But I can't say that today. And that that is really sad. Um, you know, we're not going to be able to afford to replace every single uh, copy we're, that we've lost. We're just um, hoping that we can replace enough to have for the parents of newborns through the end of this year. Well, I know. Is, yeah. I was on. I don't tell the listeners. I was on the board uh, of uh, Prevent Child Abuse for for a while, and I found out that Linda and her staff live, breathe, eat, sleep Prevent Child Abuse Vermont. And I'm thinking we only have about three minutes, Linda. But when we come back from the break, we need to talk about the children that you support. This is another blow for them. This is another tragic event besides COVID. Now we've got this disaster, and the children must be suffering from this. I, I can't imagine. I know I had Mary Moulton and Sue Mittner on mm -hmm. about what, they, what they do in the mental health 
community and in helping people. And I mean, how much can one person deal with in homelessness um, and in some cases abuse? And then we have the COVID and the flood. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I, I just can't imagine what the kids are going through. So um, I just wanted to start talking about that and uh, mm -hmm. what you guys are able to do to reach out to these folks that need help because now you need help too. This is true. And, um, but, you know, all of our groups, all of our meetings, all of our training, all of our programs, because they're online, yep. are continuing on. Um, we, we have that very first week of the, of the flood, we did have to cancel some in-person training uh, because we couldn't get there. Right. But the roads reached out. But uh, that has really improved and everything is back on track. But you're absolutely right. Parents are just beside themselves. They, they're trying to figure out ways to uh, encourage and support their children and, and themselves because it's, it's just biblical in proportion. First right. you have a, a plague and then you have a flood. Yeah, I know. And I just, I heard, um, uh, you know, the trailer park off 302 near the world? Yeah. yeah. The owner's, cause he's closing it down and he's, and all the folks that live there have to move. 30, they live in trailers and it's a beautiful group of people, absolutely um, wonderful folks. Yeah. And they've got 30 eliminated. Now they've got to find place to place to live and everything. I'm on the phone with Linda Johnson a very dear friend and an executive director for the Prevent Child Abuse Vermont um, group of folks. They are, they just, how long were you on State Street, Linda? Not a well, year. I, we moved last November, Pat. Oh, right. Yeah, I knew it's, yeah. it's been a while. And because um, I was, I keep track with Ed, Ed and I keep, uh, keep gabbing <laughs> it. Um, but anyway, um, obviously, being on State Street was not a good thing this year. Um, a lot of stores, like like Windows, a lot of uh, places were totally flooded out. And um, and you obviously want to get back get back to work, huh? What can, well, we we never we never really stopped. We That's were so true. familiar with working from home that we picked yeah. up our laptops, you know, and off we went. Um, That's great. Yeah, so nothing has stopped, and we had tremendous support from the community in bringing our materials, whatever we had left, right. to the conference floor on the second floor. And then our dear landlord, Steve Rivellini, who's just an amazing human being, yes. who gives us the lowest rent possible and uh, makes it affordable and brought us to this State Street address, 15 State Street which I never would have even dreamt of being able to um, be part of the State Street community. And we have great big picture windows and we can promote our programs and let people know what we're doing. And um, it, it's just been a dream come true. Right. You know, so, yeah. this isn't funny, but I was helping somebody at their house and, and you've got all of these magazines and books and stuff. When a book like a paperback book gets wet it mm. blows up and it's like a it's like bricks picking up bricks they get so heavy all those things so god bless your mm -hmm. volunteers for um doing all that work 
Do you have a lot of stuff out on the sidewalk to be picked up? We had a mountain. A mountain. <laughs> yeah. A mountain. And yeah. I'm laughing because it's just somebody sent us pictures of what State Street looks like, and everything yeah. inside is now outside. Um, That's right. And of course, as you said, it's it's just furniture. So your your concern is the is the education materials that you have. Right. Right. Can the so we, French Children's yeah. Youth America help out at all? Are they um, involved? No, they sent us their best wishes, <laughs> but you know, we're on our own, Pat. Exactly. Isn't that the truth? Um, well, what can what can we do to help, Linda? Well, the God's honest truth is uh, we lost $74,000 worth of materials and things that have to be replaced to continue our work in schools and with families and the birthing centers and all that we do, our helpline, the parents' helpline, um, all of this to pay our people, everything. Um, so we are, you know, trying to raise money. We did receive $30,000 from our insurer, which we were really happy about and, um, that was a good beginning, and now with uh, little grants that we've applied for and donations, we're up to forty-one thousand. But we still have another thirty-five to go. And uh, so we're Has FEMA visited you, or how? How is FEMA getting involved with all this? I'm so glad you asked me about FEMA because we were so excited to see them coming through and you know, going to families and to businesses. And we thought this is really terrific. So the final word from FEMA about nonprofits is you can get a loan, a low interest loan, but that's it. It is not grant. And, you know, the last thing we need is debt. So, um, and we, we did get $5,000 from the Vermont Community Foundation, uh, which we really appreciate, but, you know, really, honestly, we have no idea if there will be more coming. I think now it's up to Vermonters uh, to literally send contributions and support this organization. I, yeah. yeah, that's great. And But Vermonters, I, I am, as much sometimes as you know, I get, I have a little issue with politics in this state, just a little. But <laughs> with that aside, when there's, when there's issues like this, Vermonters just, do what they need to do to get her done. I, I am always blown away by this state. It's generosity and um, it's kindness. I mean, all the accolades you can think of, Vermonters are, are those kind of people when we have disasters. It's really something to see and something to be very proud of, politics aside. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, at, at this point, um, we are so grateful to the volunteers, and that includes the Vermont Youth Conservation Corps. Those kids came in and picked up stuff and hauled it, and, you know, they, they were just remarkable. And That's great. It, it, yeah, I mean, it was, it was astonishing. We were so well supported in that emergent, urgent situation. Um, but now it's going to take dollars and cents to rebuild our capacity to help people. Is your office space, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, is it safe to go in with all the toxins no. and stuff? It's toxic. And so it's we toxic. actually, we had two people who were working on the second floor, 
and um, we had to send them home and they, they have to work from home. I can't let anyone in for another week. Yep. You know, our landlord has uh, taken out, you know, wallboard and ripped out the carpets and, you know, cleaned and cleaned and cleaned and is doing a tremendous job in there. But some of the material that he has to use to seal things because of the mold. Right. Um, toxic and you know we just can't be in there it's you know at first he said it was going to be about a month before he thought we'd be back in but to be honest with you i i don't know if it will be more than a month but we are working we are working it's just you know shifting and receiving materials that is um the hard part getting them printed this just reminded me Back in the flood in 1992, I was commissioner of motor vehicles, and I was on the third floor, and right mm. behind my desk was a vent um, mm. where they had the stuff in the basement, you know, air filter coming okay. up and everything. And within, I think it was maybe a couple of days, several of the women and my several of the women got sick, and they um, uh, and they mm. had their chest, their, their lungs. And uh, so they went home, and we we asked the health department to come in, <laughs> and they were a little slow in doing that. And so then I got sick. I thought I was having a heart attack. So oh I called them up. I said, okay, now listen. <laughs> Let's, yeah. We had five women who got sick from the mold. Oh they had to come in and do what they're doing to you. So good for Steve that he's doing it up front and, and uh, oh. uh, hopefully making sure the mold goes away. He is remarkable. I have to say, we could not have imagined a more forthright and caring and generous landlord. And he he was on it immediately, and he still is. So we're very, very very grateful. He He really is. He totally does. He really loves what we do and supports us, and he does really love the community. I've said so many people who say, you know, they could not do what they do without renting from Steve. So Wow, that's good. He, what a statement that is, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he's he's amazing. So I would love somebody to explain why, which is good on the Montpelier side, there was much more water in Montpelier, but in, in Barry, it was just uh, feet, even inches of mud. I mean, it was just yeah. unbelievable the mud in Barry. I, I don't yeah. know how that whole how the water worked pushing the all the mud down into Barry. It was it was just disgusting. And obviously, you had to wear gloves and mask and barn yeah. boots for sure. Um, yeah. But it was just weird how how the two towns had this disaster, but different because Barry was yeah. mud and Montpelier was water, which is, they both do damage, but pretty gross. So if you will, um, if we can get the funding, you'll get all the books and stuff and you've got access upstairs. So um, is that safe to be upstairs on the second floor? No, it isn't right now because of the fumes from these um, chemicals that they have to use to get rid of and the the, um, uh, the mold and then seal the surfaces. It, yep. It's, you know, it's not good. Yeah. Bad. I think yeah. you need to know um, that uh, at 11 o'clock, I don't know if you heard me, the uh, governor is giving an update 
on the flood and, and the resources and stuff, and it um, can be found uh, a link on um, on his homepage and also Orca, uh, just to see if there's other things you've missed with regards to funding sources and uh, yeah. things. Because I know Montpelier Alive is is really working hard to to help the businesses and nonprofits downtown. They have yeah. a, a wonderful new leader who I'm going to try to reach out to and. And get her to call this on the show. Um, we did apply. We did apply. We're, we're, we're applying for everything we can. For sure. But you know, we're, uh, we've got a little ways to go. Well, you know, you yeah. always, because of the nature of the work, I you always manage to um, get folks to help because they understand how important it is. So, have you? I just wanted to talk a little bit about if you've seen. I um, I know you help the helpers of the kids, but what kind of what kind of trauma uh, uh, what kind of trauma are they are they experiencing the kids? I mean, uh, I don't think the parents may not know what to do, and and I just think the impact on the kids must be terrible. I think it is, Pat. You know, people are talking about it in our groups, our family support programs, and um, teenagers are especially uh, at risk because they were before. They were really struggling with the isolation that they experienced oh, from right. COVID, mm-hmm. you know, which is like the opposite of their developmental needs, you know, being right. that. And now this. And, um, you know, some of them have lost their first cars or, you know, are now feeling cut off again because, you know, a bridge is down or a road needs fixing and or, or they can't go to their favorite, you know, swimming place because it's polluted or... You know, it's just not safe. And every time it rains, I think children are afraid. And everybody has a good point. You know, gets the heebie-jeebies and you hear on television, you know, risk of flooding again, risk of flooding again. Well, there might be some flooding, outlying flooding. Well, it's going to be thunder and lightning. And, you know, I... What really worried me was the discussion about the Wrightville Dam. I mean, if that thing broke... Yes, it would be, yes. It'd be going right into Montpelier. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. And we were very happened. fortunate that we, the gentleman who died, that was incredibly sad how that all happened. But we were very lucky that there was only the one the one gentleman. Um, I know. It was remarkable. And yeah. it was sad, so awful. And, you know, I saw the interview with his wife and right. I just, you know, tears welled up. I mean... How how tragic, but it is um, miraculous almost right. that only one person right. died as a result of all of this flooding. But there were over 200 water rescues, and people came to help us from out of state. And as you say, you know, Vermonters really do come together do. when things are not good and things have not been good. Yeah, because I uh, that when we were doing uh, the house in Barry. Um, the Red Cross came by, and one of the guys we talked to was from Denver. That wow. the Red Cross called, made a call out to mm-hmm. help, and mm-hmm. um, I'm assuming they paid for the flight and stuff. But they, but this guy came, and he was giving us packages of uh, survival mm-hmm. material, you know, things to, oh. uh, to. It was really, it was amazing. The whole truck was packed with all this stuff, and uh, you know, and the Red Cross was right there, um, and. I knew a guy in personnel here in Vermont that would would just go, and we supported him in doing that. Whenever there was a hurricane or something, the Red Cross would call him up and 
where and he go uh, to wherever. So, yep. oh, and do you know what they have a group? It's called Dart Vermont Dart. It's a a group that's in the auditorium in Barry that takes mm-hmm. care of dogs. Oh. And I, I, oh, I know. I'm having. I'm working with a woman to try to get her on the show. They're part of the Humane Society, but their job is to go into an area and find the, you know, the abandoned dogs or the injured yeah. dogs, or, or some people they just can't take care of their dogs given their personal situation with the flood. Right. And they've got the whole odd all set up. When I saw Dart, I actually thought it was the um, uh, helicopter from. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, from the hospital down in New Hampshire. Yeah. And it wasn't, yeah. it was these people who were taking, and people were dropping off. I dropped off a big bag of dog food and, um, oh, and people were, oh, they were, I said, oh my God, thank you. What things you don't think about because you're trying to save yourself and your kids. And sadly, the, the dogs are sort of on their own sometimes, but it was a wonderful group of people. I thought, that's great. They just set up and, I guess the dogs, they were being very well behaved. They must have known. They sensed that something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought that made me feel good. But um, assuming, visualizing that the everything is back to, quote, normal, whatever that is, um, mm-hmm. what are your plans for the future for Prevent Child Abuse for Moths? You've obviously changed some things, which is interesting. Oh, well. We moved, that's for sure. That's true. But you're going to stay there, right? You're going to rebuild and stay there. Yeah. Yeah. That we is are. a perfect yeah. spot for the legislature, for lunch, for yep. all kinds of things. All kinds of things. And here's the thing, Pat. We have our walk, which has not changed, coming up on September 30th oh, on the State House on the Farm. Yep. And we need people to come and walk to put teams together, family teams, friends teams, work teams, all kind of teams. And please come and support us and walk that day. It's a lot of fun. There are great snacks, lots of lots of fun, some music. And we'll be there on the State House lawn at 9 a.m. And children are welcome. Everyone is welcome. And we need the support so desperately now more than we ever imagined right. um, we always do but now we need it even more so the walk sometimes for children spider-man not, comes sometimes right pardon i said sometimes spider-man comes oh yes definitely spider-man has told me that he is you know flying in in his cool. own spidey way um, you know, the web slinger will be there, and we're very honored and excited to welcome him again. That's great. I have some wonderful pictures when my grandchildren were little. Of course, now they're 29 and 27, I think. I can't remember. But anyway, they're, they could they could hang out with Spider-Man, but I have some great pictures of them when they were little with Spider-Man. The kids just love him. Yes, it's, and he's really good. Yep. And who's that entertainer uh, with the funky hairdo? Um, the kids love him, too. Oh, gosh, I can't think. We've had so many over the years. But well, this guy had, had um, he had, I think, it was, I hope it was a wig for his sake. Um, it was the funky hair sticking up. And uh, he used to, he would play, uh, of course, John Gailmore was there one year. Yeah. That was yeah. a treat. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's great, John. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 
So, um, well, we're going to wrap it up, Linda, and then we're going to tell people to put September 30th at 9 o'clock at the State House. You've got to come help PCAVT and the children of Vermont. Not necessarily in that order because it's all about the kids. It is, and we can't prevent child abuse without everyone's help. For sure. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking that people who are, who are prone to abusing their children, the stress of COVID and the flood might exacerbate that right. situation. And uh, you probably need um, funding and support now more than ever because everybody, Linda, is so angry. Ay. I know, I know. And, and that was people before the flooding. They're just, you know, doing the best they can and need support. Yep. So more is much better than less. Uh, for sure. Well, thank yeah. you so yeah. much for coming on, Linda. I really appreciate it. I uh, just wanted to remind people that uh, right after this show, the governor is on uh, with some emergency response officials to provide you with an update on the state's uh, ongoing flood response and recovery efforts. So uh, you can link on the governor's uh, website or ORCA media website. And I'm going to be joining the governor for sure. So thank you all for listening in. We'll be back on Tuesday. Oh, excuse me, Thursday. Uh, this is Pam McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV.